Have you ever been in a no-win situation? No matter what you decide to do, you're going to lose. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Um, men, let's say your wife asks you what you think of her new haircut. That's great. <laughs> well, you say, you say that, right? It looks great, honey. Then she says... Do you like it better than it was before? (laughs) There is no right answer to that question. Okay? It's like an executioner asking if you'd rather be hung, shot, or poisoned. You'll still be dead. No win, right? Do you remember two weeks ago, um, we were in 1 Samuel 27, and we left David in a no-win situation, okay? David was pretending to be loyal to a pagan king, and now he's stuck because the Philistine army is gathering to attack his people, Israel. And the pagan king expects David to fight on their side. Of course he does. And so the writer left us in a cliffhanger. What will David do? And that's where we're going to be today. So this is God's word beginning in 1 Samuel 29, verse number 1. It says this, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. The commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. Good point. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Okay, so quick explanation. Instead of having one king, the Philistines actually had, and my voice is going to go all over the place today, so I'm sorry. Um, The Philistines actually had different men ruling over each city-state. And the other commanders of these different cities do not trust David for good reason. Achish tries to defend David, but he loses the argument. Okay, verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest... And to me it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. 
Little does he know, right? Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. Verse 7, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? So David is a really good actor. We, we already know that he's been deceiving Achish, if you remember He's been telling him that he's attacking. He's, he's left some things unsaid, okay? So he's, he's been deceiving this man. Verse 9. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. <laughs> Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning, three times, he said that, to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. <clears throat> and that's our text today. First thing I want you to notice, again, is that God is silent in this story. The only mention of God at all in what we just read was by the pagan king. He uses God's name, which is another reminder for us. Just because we don't hear God speaking doesn't mean he's absent. God is clearly working this out for David behind the scenes, right? God is not only concerned with the end results of a thing. He is also concerned with the means by which we get there. So what he does in this story is he extends mercy to David by using the suspicion of David's enemies. And I think that's really interesting, okay? This was a close call. David was in a mess, and God let him feel it. There wasn't an obvious solution, right? I want you to imagine the stress of this situation. There was nothing that David could say or do to get himself out of this dilemma. Now, in 2021, he could just claim that he tested positive for COVID, but that wasn't going to work, right? I can't show up today for the military campaign because, no, he can't do that, right? The only thing David could do was show up at the battle and wait. If he fights with the Philistines... He's going to show himself to be a real traitor to his own people. If he refuses to go into the battle, or if he turns on the Philistines during the battle, which is what they think he's going to do, and they're probably right, he's going to be caught behind enemy lines with a few hundred men. This is not a good situation. And don't forget that David actually got himself into this mess. 
he decided to retreat to Philistia and he did not consult God. In fact, he went in fear of man. God doesn't owe David anything. But God was merciful. This story is about God saving David in a way that only God could do. If David tried to do anything at all except wait, he could have ruined everything. And we need to see that. Had he said or done anything, he could have made a bigger mess. Instead, David did nothing, which is exactly what God wanted David to do. Okay, So that's the story. There's not a lot to it, but... I think there are two very important lessons in our text, okay? The first is this. I think we need to consider God's mercy in our lives. So that's the first thing for you. Consider God's mercy in your life. And we should all be able to look back over our lives and see moments when our foolishness should have, to, should have destroyed us. I mean, if we're being honest, if we can look back over our lives, there should have been times where we can look and say, you know what? Had God not been merciful, that would have been really bad. And I remember some of those moments in my life clearly. My sin had all the potential of ruining my life. I can easily see where my words and actions should have ruined my marriage. I can easily see where my sin should have ruined any potential future of being a pastor. I can see the providential mercy of God in my life. Now, from a human perspective... If I'm being honest, when I read 1 Samuel and I read the stories of Saul and David, it's difficult for me to see a big difference between these two men. I'm thinking specifically of the sins that they've committed. Okay? And we haven't even made it to 2 Samuel where David's going to do some really boneheaded stuff, but... Even so far, right? I mean, it's clear to me that David has more faith than Saul. But both of these men have already committed obvious sins that could have led to their demise. Both of them. The biggest difference between them, I think, is the mercy of God. Not that David was that much better than Saul. You see, if you do not see the mercy of God in your life, if you're not amazed by it, that's a big problem. I mean, worship may be on your lips, but it won't be in your heart. Perhaps the most famous psalm in the Bible is what? Any guesses? Psalm 23, right? I see a few people, right? And who was it written by? David, right? And in verse 5, he says, 
You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, right? And we love that line, right? It's just a beautiful, beautiful poem. Um, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. But have you ever stopped to consider that most of the time, David ended up in the presence of his enemies by making bad decisions? I mean, that's what's happening, right? And yet, his experience was that God would prepare a table for him anyway. And in fact, in our story today, God uses David's... God uses... (laughs) You can laugh, it's funny. The preacher's got whatever voice. But... God, I want to get this right, okay? I'm channeling Steve Brown for a minute, okay? God uses David's enemies to prepare that table. Do you see that? It's not just that God's preparing the table. He's using David's enemies to, to prepare the table in the midst of his enemies. And then David ends Psalm 23 by saying, Surely, I'm supposed to be, y'all are supposed to be reading this. There it is. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's obvious that David knows something about the mercy of God, right? He's experienced it, he's talking about it with some experience. So consider God's mercy in your life. And that may be really difficult if you're going through something really hard right now. I understand that. But if you look back over your life and you consider some of the things that you've done that should have made it worse, things are not as bad as they could be. Or as bad as they should be. Because of the mercy of God. Second. So first, look at God's mercy in your life. Second, God doesn't need us to do anything. God doesn't need us to do anything. His mercy operates independent of us. Okay? David got himself into this mess and does nothing to help. God didn't wait for David to clean up what David messed up. Do you see that? God saved David without any help from David. And he saves us without any help from us. Okay? Now, when I say that God doesn't need us to do anything... That's not the same thing as saying God doesn't want us to do anything. Okay? I mean, there's some theological stuff here, but bear with me, okay? God certainly wants His people to respond to His mercy in certain ways. He wants us to respond to His mercy in worship, in faith, in repentance, in obedience to His Word, right? So I'm not saying that God doesn't care at all what you're doing. 
I'm just saying He doesn't need you to do anything to help your own salvation. And that is very, very important. God's mercy is given freely, without condition. And this is not something that is easy for us to accept or to believe. Now you hear it and you think, oh yeah, okay, that sounds good. I like that idea. But it's really not that easy for us to accept it. And yet it's all over the Bible. Look at this, Ephesians 2, verse 4. God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, our sins, made us alive together with Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Titus 3 verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but why? According to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What's the theme here? God is rich in mercy, and we did nothing to earn it. Do you see it? God is rich in mercy, we did nothing to earn that mercy. And all the stuff that comes with it. Okay, so not saying doesn't care, you know that God doesn't care about our response to that mercy and how we live out our lives as Christians, but we don't get His mercy by doing something. And it has to be that way. It has to be that way. Just as God in His mercy saved David from himself, God in His mercy saves us from ourselves. That is the gospel. And the amazing part is how God did it. God used David's own enemies to accomplish his will for David's salvation. Right? And that's the story. And even though God seemed absent and silent, right? He never is, right? And that's the beauty of this story. That should sound familiar, right? God uses David's own enemies to save David from himself. What should that sound like? Remember how Peter described God's plan of salvation when he's preaching in Acts chapter 2? What's he say? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What's Peter saying? 
He's saying, God used bad men to kill Jesus on purpose. Now stop and think about that. God used bad men to kill Jesus on purpose. Another way of saying that is God used His enemies to establish grace for His enemies. And the thing about it is Jesus endured this injustice willingly. In 1 Samuel 29, David was saved by doing nothing because he had no power to save himself anyway, right? Just like us. I mean, we're saved by God's work, His effort, because we can't make ourselves right with God. But Jesus had the power to save Himself. In fact, Jesus was specifically mocked for not saving Himself. And yet He took it. All of it. The laughter. The spit. The thorns. The nails, the spear, the wrath of God for our sin, and the death. Why? To trade places with David and with us. You see, the mercy of God is free for us but it is not free for God. For God, mercy is very costly. The only way that God could prepare a table for us in the midst of our enemies, which for us is sin and death, was by the death of Jesus. Because what that meant doing is God preparing a table for Himself in the midst of His enemies. Because that's who we are. And on that day, Good Friday, it looked like a no-win situation. And that's how everybody saw it. Disappointing. Devastating. He told them it was going to happen. They still didn't get it. But it was the ultimate victory. Here's my favorite part. Are you ready? Did you notice the little detail in verse 11? I kind of highlighted it, but I just I didn't mention it afterwards. The writer tells us three times... Three times that David rose early in the morning to return home. Did you catch that? Chapter 30, spoiler alert, tells us that David arrived at home 
on the third day. Isn't that cool? Such a such a subtle thing, right? Such a such a small detail. And of course the writer of Samuel has no idea what why that's important. He couldn't have. When was Jesus Christ raised from the dead? Early in the morning on the third day. You can't make this stuff up. This is why the Bible is so amazing. I mean, this is it. It's too amazing of a book to be written by men. There's no way somebody wrote that 1,500 years before Jesus and it just so happened that that's when... I mean, it just doesn't make sense that this is not divine. More importantly, our God is too amazing to ignore. He is rich in mercy and He is offering it to you this morning in Christ And He doesn't need you to do anything except receive it in wonder. That's it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe as Your people that on the morning of the third day, Your dead body came back to life. And you rose and exited the tomb as the first fruits of everything that God promises to do for those who belong to you. Lord, you have been rich in mercy. If we look at our lives honestly, we can say that we have not been the people that we should have been. We have not lived lives that have honored you. Even today, even yesterday, we have not glorified you in all that we have said or done. And we can't fix that. But you've already done it, it is finished. And so I pray that by your Spirit you would help us to receive the knowledge of that mercy, of that grace that's available to us in Christ and that we would respond to it this morning in faith. I would be so bold as to pray that maybe somebody in this room has never put faith in you, that they would respond boldly to it this morning by your grace moved along by your spirit, carried by you, that they would respond in faith, that they would receive the mercy of God today, that they would confess their sin to you and ask for the mercy that's available in Christ. Already given if they're yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.